Welcome to Grief is My Side Hustle. I am exploding outside of my head right now because you know that I love to do this podcast every single time. But this one is a ridiculous honor because my dearly beloved right hand, Julianne Rolfson, is here with us today. Julianne, thank you for being here. I am thrilled and I can't believe that we're doing this. It's it's a long time coming and especially special because I discovered you through your podcast. So it just feels really special to be able to be in conversation with you. So let's just, before I ask the question that I always ask to get us rolling, let's just give the <laughs> listeners sort of an inside baseball <laughs> of what they're looking at, listening to and who they have with them today. About a year and a half ago, I had a project. And those of you that have been hanging around for a while, you might remember this. I think I was out on Instagram and I was like, oh man, I really need some help. If anyone out there wants to, like I have a little bit of money, if you can do a little bit of work for me, that would be amazing. And I think, I don't know, 11.3 seconds later, you had emailed me with these papers you'd written, your resume, the whole thing. And I was like, oh my God, this is the universe doing something amazing. And so at first I sent you this answer that was like, let me look into this. Let me check this out. This will be my other people have gotten it. And then I read all your stuff and I was like, oh my God, this is it. This is, and I, we didn't even know what we were getting ourselves into. We did not. I had, I remember I had just mowed my lawn. I was going to pick the boys up from daycare. And I was like, I need to respond to this immediately. I was such a fan and I'll never forget. I, we had our first zoom a couple days later and I remember coming downstairs, like almost in tears, telling my husband, I think this is going to be something like really special. Yeah. And it is a lot of what, when people ask me on podcasts, what do you need? What helps you? What you're who I talk about, because I have never had somebody who is in my field and has their own set of sub skills that complement mine you are good at a lot of the stuff that I am bad at, keeping calendars, being able to find emails, being on time, doing numbers, but also you're deeply passionate about a lot of the stuff that I am passionate about. And you have your own goals and dreams and you've been in school and headed into your own um, life's work in the grief space, which is just amazing. So the, the partnership for me, has been so much more rewarding than I ever expected when I just casually said, oh, hey, shit, I need some help. And then there you are. So let's jump into this podcast that I've been looking to, forward to forever. And let's do it. Let's have you answer the question that I ask all of my guests. What brings you into the world of grief and loss? Yeah. Similar to you. It's one of the things that's been so interesting about working together is some of the ways that our stories are similar. And I would say the official answer to that is the loss of my parents. Just like you, my parents died within a couple of years of each other. My dad really pretty suddenly in 2015. My mom after a year of pancreatic cancer in 2017. So that's definitely what brought me into where I am now. But it's something I've reflected on a lot in terms of where did my story with grief and loss actually start? And it feels I was born into the wake of loss. Two months before I was born, my mom was 27 and obviously pregnant with me. Her mom died. Mm. And I think she was 60 years old. And 
that has always been part of my story and that I've always really, really felt the absence. I've really always been aware that there's something that I can't quite reach and that no one really talks about. And it's always been really important to me. Um, and there have been some other losses around that too. I learned that that same grandmother had a, a sister, older sister, who was killed when she was about three, I think, in an accident. That really deeply impacted me hearing about that. Her name's Victoria. I took that as my middle name. And so this has always been part of my story. There just has been both kind of a longing and an absence, but that I never knew how to put words to because no one in my life put any words to it. God, that I feel that legacy that even before you come into the world that your mom is carrying mm -hmm. this tremendous grief story. And it just makes me think about even just broadly and globally, what does that mean for people epigenetics wise? Like what do we carry in our DNA and what are our stories? But it, but I love the way you answered the question because I do think that there, there is a magnetism for some of us around not only having the conversations and being in this space, but just the comfort of being able to talk about it when it yes. wasn't talked about before. Yes. I think I was always searching for these conversations. I wish that it didn't take what it took for me to get to a point where I have them all the time. And it does feel like there was something always there um, that now I'm honoring by doing this work. So your life after the death of your parents really took a pivot as, as minded. This is another way that we relate. Can you talk about that shift and what your, yeah. maybe your work life and how that um, shifted? Yeah, I think one of the best ways to understand my pre-loss world is anyone who knew me at that point would have known that I was a bit obsessed with the idea of life as a choose your own adventure. So I know that dates me a little bit for those who don't know what choose your own adventure <laughs> books are. They were books that were popular long ago. Best. They, were oh, best. they were so fun, but you opened the book and you got to the end of a certain section and it would say, okay, you have four choices. If you choose to open the door, skip to page 64. If you choose to turn and run the other way, skip to page 90. And based on those choices you make, you get a different ending of the book. So I was pretty obsessed with this idea of life is a choose your own adventure. We get to make all these decisions and mm -hmm. any of those decisions can determine kind of the way that our stories finish. And I lived in that kind of way. I lived in this way that I wanted to have all of the lives. So I tried to do all of the things. <laughs> I moved to LA and worked in the entertainment industry. I moved to the Bay Area and worked in tech. I lived as an expat for a while. I lived on a houseboat in Sausalito for a while. I did, I was trying to have all of the lives, a way of not missing out on anything. And when I reflect back on it, it feels a little bit of, I also wasn't getting too attached to anything, right? Mm -hmm. There was a part of it that was like, oh, if I keep jumping from page to page and getting to make these decisions and never being that scared of change, I'll never be attached to something so much that the loss could hurt me so much. Uh, man, that is... It's a nice narrative, right? Like it's yeah. this full of agency, full of, of joy and energy. And it sounds very like 
20s to 30s years old to me. The the world is my oyster. It's just there for me to take. And I think one of the legacies of really profound loss is we look at people who are doing that and we think, yeah, you just don't know. Right. Like I often think about life really, when you're looking at other people, you just don't know what lap of life they're on. There's no person that gets all the way around the track for 20, 30, 50, 70 laps and doesn't have a lap like you and I have had. Yeah. And and you don't know. And I, and I, I, I look back and wonder if there were people around me who saw the privilege in that worldview that I didn't, particularly people who have been through that lap or been through that loss. Um, I remember I listened to uh, one of Megan Devine's podcasts mm-hmm. and the guest was uh, Malkia Devich Cyril. Um, and she talked about privilege being a protection against loss and all of the ways that we try to protect against it. And you and I talk about how we see this all the time, right? Corporations do this. It's We can't really talk about loss. If you're going to fail, you're going to fail fast. And then you're going to cover quick. On- Keep Keep on moving up into the right. And there's a privilege in not having to address. Yeah. Not having to yield, not having to slow down and sit down. Yeah. And I think we do it as parents. We try to shield and deny that loss exists, right? We, we, I think we do it in terms of shielding them from death, but we also do it in terms of you get a participation trophy. You're not really a loser, right? We don't really want our kids to lose anything. So we're not really showing them that loss, it's not an interruption of life. It, it is life. It's part of our lives. And I skip skipping ahead a little bit, but I've seen this a little bit with grief experts as well in a way that's upsetting to me in that sometimes there's just a focus of what's next? What's the post-traumatic growth? What can we focus on that's not sitting in the loss? Yeah. And that now narrative is really hard for me, but gosh, pre-lost Julianne, choose your own adventure. Julianne would have been completely on board with all of those things. Absolutely. Absolutely. Just give way. And this is my first time on a podcast, but I've been obsessed with podcasts for a very long time. And in 2015, I went to this big podcast movement conference and I was getting ready to launch my own podcast. And And my podcast was going to be about, it was called What If? And it was about the decisions that shape our lives. And my whole plan was to have people on the podcast to talk about the choices they make and how those choices determine their destiny. And you can't make, you can't make up the timing of this. So New Year's Eve, 2014, I'm at my parents' house. My parents' house was my refuge. So I talked about how I moved around all of the time. My parents' house was where I always went back to, no matter where I was living. I visited a lot. And I was there on New Year's Eve, and I was in their den, and I was recording (laughs) this intro to this podcast. And I recorded it and put it out New Year's Eve, 2014. And then the next couple of weeks leading up to what was going to be my launch, I recorded every week. And... I just went back and looked at it recently. And the last thing I posted was January 21st from New Year's Eve cut to January 30th. And while I was recording this, my dad's in the next room. My parents are in the next room watching TV. Last week in January, my dad goes in the hospital. And after four days there with no answers, really, he's put into hospice and dies a day later. And the podcast never came out. Yeah. Yeah. That was was the end of that version. 
I just got chills when you said that, because I think that might be the first time on this podcast, someone has talked so plainly about how the death of a loved one took from them a different kind of dream. We focus a lot on traumatic growth. We focus a lot. And I don't mean to say that widows haven't talked about, oh, this this is a different life or that mothers who've lost children haven't said, this isn't what I expected, but you just gave us a math equation of this is what I was doing. And that ended like immediately. And I think that'll make sense to a lot of people who are grieving, grieving now and have grieved because it all that stuff takes energy and you have to be in the right place to the, I couldn't read. Some people couldn't go back to their art, couldn't go back to their jobs, but it's a really interesting thing to hear that it was a deep passion. And now through the rest of the grief and loss work, you find yourself back in this arena and on this podcast. And I, it, it is interesting as one of my before and after lines, because there is no way I could have sat down in a microphone and asked someone about these decisions they make or reflect on my own decisions when all of a sudden I'm brought into that other world, right? I'm brought into the world that truly deeply understands that life happens to us we we can't control right that the control is what we're all looking for we're, we want to feel like we have the choice that feels great right. that feels wonderful that's what the corporations are trying to do right is keep that choice and keep that agency and from a much broader view there are so many ways that so many people just don't have those choices right and suddenly i was much more aware of the ways that life was not about choice and so i could no longer talk about a worldview that no longer made sense in my life. Yeah. So that's, I think, one of the things that also is true about grief and loss, which is you change your perspective and you can't change it back. And I think I've talked a lot about like relationships that I had that I, I didn't reflect on whether they were feeding me or whether I was being charitable in them or why they existed. But then my parents died and I just couldn't do them at all. It was like, it didn't, it wasn't even worthy of reflection anymore. It was just like, this is a relationship I can't be in. I can't be friends with this person or I can't show up to this tennis lesson or whatever it is. I can't do this anymore. But I think part of what you're talking about is, and you described it as a privilege before, just having your prefrontal cortex be the way your critical thinking, the part of your mind that's like just right behind your forehead, the most sophisticated piece, be the way that you get to walk through the world means that you are not out of, nothing is blowing you over. You're not dysregulated. If you're able to sit down and make a pros and cons list and then have a cup of coffee and a piece of toast, you're probably not in that activated grief where just making one piece of toast might mean you need to take a nap after because your system is, it's misfiring and it's not allowing you to use your prefrontal cortex in that way. Right. Yeah. And I think you know, you and I are both familiar with internal family systems, IFS, which I think you've talked about on the podcast, but it's a little bit about thinking about our inner worlds as different parts of ourselves very in a very simplified uh, way to describe it. And I think I had a part of myself that was very prefrontal mm-hmm. cortex led, right? It was the part that could manage my life, that could make decisions. And there were all of these other parts that we talked about earlier, of these parts that really had longing and felt deep loss and did want to attach to things deeply. And those just, I didn't let those 
be available to me. And then we haven't even gotten to the actual true before and after of of my story, which is if I think about those other parts, I, I almost picture like there's a dam at the bottom of my at the bottom of my abdomen, right? And it's like a dam that's keeping keeping my body together. And I remember very clearly the day that that dam completely broke, right? And to your point, I no longer had the option of not accessing those parts of myself. And that day was the day. So cut to a year and a half later after my dad died and my mom was visiting. We were ready to go on vacation together. She asked to talk to me. We had spent the night together, the previous night together, going out to dinner. The next morning she stopped by before heading off to the vacation we were going on together and told me that she thought she had pancreatic cancer. That's what the doctors thought. that's the moment that my dam broke. Like that moment. Yeah. I was really focused on taking care of my mom. She's always been my deepest attachment. She was my absolute favorite person. And so I was like, okay, we got through that year later, picking up the pieces and and this diagnosis happened. How how did you in that dam breaking show up for then what you had to do in life, which was be in your mother's illness with her. Yeah. I think in that dam breaking, there was also a bit of an access to the preciousness of the time that we had, right? It, it was an access to the importance of what we had. I was really mad too, right? I was really mad at the universe, but we had already lost my dad. And so I think at this point it was like, all right, I'm showing up. We're showing up. My sister and I, and my sister especially ended up moving down there, but really just focused the next year of our life uh, of being there. And and with that said, this was also the, the time of my life where I had met my now husband and we were on the path to getting engaged. And so all of that existed together. But I think I just can viscerally remember the difference between when I didn't know this, how terrible this could be. And when I had that understanding. It's such a universal thing that grievers talk about, right? It's you and I talk about this. We write curriculums, we talk to companies and we always include this which is you and I both have had children. The image that I always try to give because it's more hopeful is that nobody ever asks you, have you gone back to normal after you have a child, after you become a mother? Nobody expects you to never to be like, oh, are you back to normal? But we are looking for a back to. And I feel like I often ask guests, if there's one thing that you could change in the field of grief, what would you do? But I think the one of understanding that everything is then different. Everything is then different. It doesn't mean that there aren't some compass coordinates that seem similar, but how you walk on the map is just different forever and ever. It's just different. And I've tried to come up with different ways of describing that difference. And one that's been really helpful to me is the idea of simultaneous contrast. So this is an art idea, but I remember I was trying to just I was trying to wrestle with the fact that I had a before that was a certain color and I had an after that was another color. And 
that sometimes it was hard for me to see those side to side or stack them on top of each other. And so I started researching color theory. And what simultaneous contrast means is that the way that we see one color is always going to be impacted by the other colors around it. So different colors affect each other. So we actually don't even see color in isolation. We only see them in relation. So I bring this up because that's what you're saying, right? That's what you're saying is that now all of a sudden my loss brings that red of your sweater into my story and it's physically, physiologically impossible for me to see the other colors the same way as I always did. I'm going to, the perspective is going to change. And that's what we see. That's what we know is true as grievers. Like when I read that, I was like, yeah, yes, <laughs> that's what we know. I, is true. I've said this to you before, because you've talked to me about it before. I get such chills when you talk about this color thing, because first of all, I love metaphors, but secondly, I just feel like it's something that people can universally understand that if I gave you the orange sweater that I'm wearing, you might put it on and say, this washes me out. And if you gave me the pink sweater that you're wearing, I might put it on and say, wow, this makes me look older. But really what we're talking about is what does the color look like up against the color that already exists around me, my skin and my hair and my eyes and all those things. And so when you talk about, we don't take in color except in the context of other colors. That is so exactly the truth about grief. Like when we talk about compound grief, that if my, I don't know, my dog's over here, if my dog were to die, that might be a sad and horrible thing. But if my dog died six weeks after my grandfather died, that might be an untenable thing. That the grief is reflective of the rest of the colors that are around us. That for people who are isolated, don't have family, to suffer a really profound loss during COVID and not be able to get to people. And that colors the way that we experience that loss. And even what you said earlier about epigenetics or the, the history of my loss or the history of cultural loss, right? All of those colors are already there. And then another color is going to keep on reflecting those other colors differently, but you don't lose them. I think sometimes what our culture wants to have happen, one of my favorite movies is the eternal sunshine of the spotless mind. So good. <laughs> so good. And and for those people who haven't seen it, the, the premise is you can, after a breakup, lobotomize, remove the part of your brain that has that holds those memories. And I think so much of our cultural, the way our culture used to talk about grief was almost like a, an eternal sunshine, right? It was almost like, oh, but you're going to remove that color. And so all the colors will continue to look just the way they always have. And we can't do that. We can't do that. And I don't think most of us would want to, to be honest, as painful as it is, though, that is the richness, right? That's the richness of how the palettes of what our lives end up looking. They all have that and re removing it would take some of that richness away too. So the other thing that I was thinking about when you're talking about this sort of linear idea of how we like to think about grief, I think the other thing that people like to do, going back to the color analogy, is to say it's good for grievers to wear orange. But what you and I know is there is no specific way that I can say to you, you lost your dad, here's a good thing to do. Or you, there are some universals that are like good for people in high emotion states. But in terms of being a griever, 
that becomes yours to grow into. Mm-hmm. And I think if you look at, if you look at companies, they expect you to figure that out in three days and get back to work, right? It's not going to take very much time. I think even if you look at loved ones, it's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable to watch my 15-year-old daughter go through transitions about what kind of clothes does she want to wear? What kind of friend does she want to be? She hasn't landed on her space yet because 15 is when you're figuring that stuff out. But we all have this little almost adolescence resurgence when we're trying to figure out how to be this griever, right? Yeah. I love the example with your daughter because it reminds me of something that just happened with my four-year-old son. He is really particular as a lot of young people are, but the other day I remember it was the morning and he had gotten part of his clothing wet and, and it just drove him nuts. And he was so mad and he wanted it to just not have happened. Right. I said, all right, we have two options, right? You can go upstairs and change your shirt go upstairs and change into something else. And he, all he kept saying is it's bothering me. It's bothering me. It's bothering me. I was like, hear that it's bothering you. Here are our options. Go change your shirt or you have to sit with it and it's going to be uncomfortable for a little bit and then it's going to dry. And, you know, that's our, our culture wants us to go change a shirt. And, and, you know, I'm now trained as a therapist too. And to be honest, like some branches of therapy kind of want you to change your shirt too. And I don't want him to have to change his shirt every time. I want him to acknowledge that it's bothering him and know that he can get through it. And I think as grievers, we have to sit there. I want to yell, it's bothering me a lot of the time. I would love to sit there and scream it because that's part of learning. Like we have to learn to sit with it. Yeah. And, And integrate it. Yeah. Sit with it, integrate it. And also what is inside your sit with it, right? Like you're, mm-hmm. he's not going to just sit there in a wet shirt. If that's the choice, maybe he's going to sit there in a wet shirt and Play-Doh or right. sit there in a wet shirt and wrestle the dog or sit there in a wet shirt and have a popsicle. But that's the stuff inside grief work that we don't really get access to because people don't talk about it enough. Um, and maybe even sometimes they don't know that's what they're doing. Like, I, I love having this conversation with people. I want to ask you this question, but like, When you look back at those years when you were integrating, I know you're still integrating, you will the rest of your life, but did you have some things that you found maybe were just specific to that time? Like the example I always use, although I did it the other day is I I blew the leaves across my tiny lawn. I don't know why, but there was something really relieving and satisfying about getting the leaves to the sidewalk and the lawn being like tidy. And I would listen to Nora McInerney's terrible Mm -hmm. things for asking and be like, these people have it worse than I do. And that was grief work for me. That was grieving. And I, I do it a little bit, but I don't do, I, that was like a kind of a, a new routine. Did you have things that were fillers for how you leaned on the growth? Yeah. Movement was huge for me. It still is. It's still what I have to do, but I hadn't really realized until looking back. And now that I look back, I'm like, I I was terrified of spin classes. Didn't want to do one in my life. A month or two after my dad died, I walked into a spin class. I've been doing them ever since. And that was the way to move. Same thing with Pilates. I had always wanted to do Pilates, never did it. Month after my mom died started. I'm now a certified Pilates teacher. And there are these things and, and both. And if you think about those two types of movement, they're really different, right? One is really high energy frenetic. One is a lot more kind of being centered in your core and learning to, to move out from your core and back in. 
And I think I needed both of those things. But the the main thing that is still part of what I do, and it's what you just talked about. I listened to all of Nora McInerney. I listened to any single possible thing I could get my hands on. And why is because anything else didn't feel real at the time. It's what any griever says, right? It's all of a sudden the world is going on. No one's talking about these really important things. And I'm able to turn to other people who have broken dams, right? I'm able to turn to other people and go to my dinner party table, which was full of grievers and listen to podcasts and audiobooks and made me feel like it was that pull I always had, right? It's It was the pull to talk about loss. And all of a sudden I heard people doing it in a really real way. And mm. that's why I found you. And it's why I still think it's so important, this work that you do and sharing stories, because you talk about the thing that no matter what you feel in grief is alone, right? Isolation is always going to be part of it, no matter what. And people sharing the the real piece, not the just post-traumatic growth piece, not the hero's journey piece of kind of the real piece and sitting with it bothers me is what has always been helpful to me. God, I love that. I feel like you just nailed that. And I think Claire Bidwell-Smith talks really beautifully about this. She has a new workbook about anxiety, but I think that panicked energy of sitting in a space that is almost intolerable and the safety of understanding that other people are either also in it, they're not in yours, right? Like you're in yours alone, but you are not existentially alone that other people have been in this place of panic and anxiety and identity loss and deep fear and confusion and resistance and anger all at the same time and are also surviving it or actually they're telling you they survived it, they don't do it as much now, they've integrated it, it's not quite as hard, it's hard in a different way, That that I think it's both like the hope and the company right? It's the big sister element. It's the somebody turning and saying, one of the phrases I use with clients all the time is I understand that you have to feel that way. And that way that they're usually talking about is like hopeless. And what I say is I don't feel that way for you. So when you, if you just want to borrow some of my hope, I'm not trying to shift you or change you. I just want you to know it's here. Like I can hold on to it for you. The belief that more will be okay. And you can stay right where you are, which is probably where you need to be. And I think one of the hardest things about grief and loss is that ebbs and flows. Absolutely. Right? And I, But I think what you just said is so important. It's the biggest learning that I've had now being a grief-informed therapist and holding space for other people is something that happened to me as a client in therapy. And it's when someone is able to hold that space and hold where you are and not try to make it different for you in the moment. I love the holding hope, but also not trying to make it different for you, not using any of the platitudes that we hear all the time, not just letting you sit with it. I've learned through experience of having someone do that for me. Like that is key to me in terms of validating exactly what we've been talking about this whole time of a culture that actually loss is a part of and letting that be okay, letting that sit and be okay. And letting me be wherever I am in the moment with it. I think 
I think that's important in general, right? Like no matter what is going on emotionally to be able to find the people who are going to let you just be as you are. But I think in grief and loss, it's a little bit like running from a monster in the woods. Like you're just trying to get to a place where like you can catch your breath behind a tree. And so when people say, I I get that, or that sounds hard or whatever it is that just says, be as you need to be. The example that I always use because it, it will never not be something that was just wild grace for me is I felt really responsible for my mom's death. Even though a part of me in that IFS way understood that was not true, I also 100% felt it and believed it and couldn't turn it off. And my friend, Sarah, who is also a therapist and just an extraordinary human, I said to her, after I said it to many people who said back to me, don't feel that way. They they said it in a loving way. But what I was looking for was like, I needed to take a breath with it. I needed somebody to say, gosh, that sounds hard. And what Sarah said to me with like tears in her, I said, you need to let me say this. Just let me say, let this be. I think it's my fault that my mom died. And she said, I'm not going to take that from you. I won't even try. And I'm so sorry you have to feel that. And that was it. And, and then it felt like water rushing through me where it was like, okay, you can just flow here because everything else felt like I was fighting and I didn't yeah. want to be fighting. I wanted to be grieving. I wanted to, I didn't want to be fighting. I didn't want to be running. I didn't want to be... Yeah. And I found that really hard. I think the hardest part of grief for me really was sitting in front of people who I could feel wanted me to be other than I was, not because they didn't love me and not because they didn't care about me, but because they could see me only as the person I had been before. And there was something about who the person I was needing to be in front of them that made them feel unsafe or uncomfortable, or they didn't like it. And that actually did me harm. I, again, I'm not accusing anyone of anything. It just did me harm. I had, I, there were people who came into my house and I ran upstairs. I was like, I can't even sit in this energy for one second. I want to ask you a question because you similar, we have similar sort of trajectories in this, that, that these, that the giant left-hand turn comes in life and like our lives were good beforehand, but we take the left, right? Like we're, we don't resist it. We go with it. Both of us, lots of education, lots of study, lots of licensing, all that stuff. There is this narrative that when there's a trauma, we want traumatic growth. And you and I are not great examples of anything other than traumatic growth, right? Like we growth is what we add. We add all these things. And you and I have added degrees and licenses and letters to our names, but I know you have some thoughts and feelings about that. Can you talk a little bit about it? Yeah, it's so funny because part of me feels like a little toddler, just like fighting against something I don't need to fight against. And there are a couple of reasons I have problems with it. Because also, if you look at if you look at my life from the outside right now, anyone would look at it and say, look at that post-traumatic growth. She lost her parents and then she became a grief therapist. Something good <laughs> happened out of it. And I just fight against that narrative so much. I remember... The morning of my mom's funeral, I was giving the eulogy. I was about to give the eulogy and I was listening to a book that just hammered post-traumatic growth home. And I wanted to throw my earphones onto the ground. It just didn't 
fit with me. And I think I know the reason. I think I know one reason. And yeah. one book that's been really important to me is Bittersweet by Susan Cain. Uh, I don't know if you've read so it. Good. Um, it's so, so beautiful in terms of the way that it talks about the hard things in life being part of life. And there's a haiku poet named Isa. And Isa had suffered several losses, lost the first couple of kids, I think right after they were born. And then their second child when they were maybe three or four or third child. And so new deep grief. And uh, Issa's known, I think, as one of the best haiku poets ever. And the translation of the poem that she really highlights in the grief portion of her book is, it is true that this world of do is a world of do, but even... And what that means to me, and she describes it more beautifully than I can, but it means, yeah, we know people live and die. We know that's the way of the world. We know that we are just like nature and that we are going to be born and die. But even so is the fight against that. The fight against, we still are allowed to stomp our feet and say that it's, that we wish it wasn't that way. Right. And I need to have those two things together. Like it's really important for me. And I think that's why post-traumatic growth bugs me because I'm over here wanting to shout, but even so, right? Post-traumatic growth feels like it's a world of do. It's a world of do, right? And we can grow from it. And there's just a part of me. And I think it's why I love listening to podcasts and people who are in it and people whose dams have broken because there's a bit of shouting, but even, right? It's saying, but this is still important. It's saying, but my grief but my grief can still be hard. Don't package it. Don't shine it up. Don't make it better. What it was making me think of when you were talking, did you see Hadestown? No. Oh God. So the musical Hadestown, it's just a Greek myth and it's Euripides and Orpheus. And we know the story already. The story is he goes down into Hades to get his woman and comes back and looks back at her and she stays there. And it's, it's a tragedy. But the way that Hadestown begins is to tell you it's a tragedy. Mm-hmm. to remind you that you know the story. Mm-hmm. And then I'm telling you, two hours and 12 minutes in, mm-hmm. when the, the hero looks back and you realize it's a tragedy and they're not going to escape Hades together and it's, this is it, everyone is crying. Everyone is crying. And the thing is, and I've seen it multiple times because I get obsessed with musicals. They help me express like the music goes into my body and it takes something out when it goes out. But I, there is something about the hopelessness of the story and what they actually, at the end of the play, what they say is we're going to do it all again. Hmm. We're going to do it all again. And I think If we are to live in this world, we are going to take the hits. You and I aren't done our tragic stories. We're not done just because we've already had more than maybe other people our age. We're not done with the loss where our hearts are not done being broken. But what is the option? The option is to actually be alone, completely isolate, pull away. And that's not living. That's not living in the present. That's not traumatic growth. It's not... But I think you said this to me, and it's going to be my learning from this episode because I hadn't really thought about this before, that I think maybe I was a kid from age three who wanted deeper connection and friendship and understanding and validation than maybe my, my beautiful, chaotic, full of family and siblings household was allowed to give me. And I know having worked as a clinician, 
that little kids who know at the age of nine that they're queer or children who grow up understanding that they have a different intellect or a different interest than the people around them, that they crave a validation and a connection in a way that maybe other members of their community don't. And that actually, I'm thinking about Lisa Kafi from uh, Sneaky Bitch Podcast because she was texting me last night. One of the things that has been holy and sacred and transformative in my life has been the people who have been pulled into the space you included, into these dive deep and quick, like Gina Maffa talks about the diver in her book, dive deep and quick into feelings and get in there fast and be able to have real conversations. That yeah. And I- the idea that, yeah, that, that longing was always there. Right. And, and that's Susan Cain's point in bittersweet is some people have more of a bittersweet disposition, like a more of a bittersweet temperament. And I feel like then those people find each other, right? It's when, when something breaks that dam, when something makes it so that you can no longer not look at that, no longer not reach for those connections that you want. And I have to say one more thing, because musical theater is huge to me too. It always has been. And I want to use the chance to share a little bit of a story about my mom, because it, it cracked me up when you said, Hades Town, you know what you're getting yourself into, right? Yeah. She, she did not want to see the musical Wicked. And she did not want to see the musical Wicked because it was about the Wicked Witch. And she's, who wants to see a musical about the bad person? I don't want to see it about the bad person. And for those of you who know Wicked, she went to see it. She ended up loving it. it. It does what we're talking about, right? It takes the narrative that you're seeing above the surface and dives underneath and flips it and shows that there's good and bad in everything, right? That there isn't a good witch and there isn't just a bad witch that kind of there's complexity to all of it. And I just love that she fought so hard against it, right? But in Again, if we look at that as like our culture just fighting against, we don't want to see the bad stuff. We want the happy ending. The prepackaged happy ending. That is all we can tolerate. That just in, I want to be respectful of our time in the last couple of minutes. Can you tell us where you headed from here with this both legacy and I think maybe passion project? Yeah. Yeah. Coming full circle to where we started. I'm going to do a podcast. Yes. (laughs) Right? Nine yes. years later, nine years later, I'm going to do Here a podcast. And as you have a book tour coming up, and I actually get the opportunity to, to use this platform for a few weeks. And the podcast I'm going to do, I'm calling it Art of Losing. It comes from the poem One Art from Elizabeth Bishop, which has been my, again, it's been my favorite for years and years, way before I knew I was going to work in the grief space. But it's about how we can prepare ourselves to lose, but can never really prepare ourselves to lose. And I also am playing on the idea of art of losing. Like we talked about earlier, you and I study the science of losing. We study the science of grief. You're one of the best experts in the science of grief, but I'm interested in the art of it too, right? The messiness, the uniqueness in having those stories of people who have embraced that, but even so that we're talking about and being able to hear from people, get back in that space of the more we share stories of how people actually get from the before to after, the more that we feel, the less we feel alone and the more that we can see ourselves in those other stories too. And I'm so lucky. I've actually reached out to people who I never thought would say yes. And I have amazing guests who have spoken about it better than I ever could. So I'm really excited about some of these conversations. 
from my perspective, knowing that, that the podcast is one of my deepest loves, these conversations are my deepest love, knowing that the audience is going to have a place to come and a space to listen and hear something with a different lens and a different focus is really exciting to me. If people want to get in touch with you with suggestions for guests, they would like to be guests. What's the best way for them to jump into the art of losing with you? Yeah, I think just finding me on Instagram, Julianne Rolofson. And so we can post that in the show notes. And I would love to hear from people. And I'm still looking for guests and stories. But yeah, like I said, your podcast is how I found you. I don't know that many people do it better than you do. And so it's the biggest honor that you're trusting me in this space. Ugh. People who know me know, I because I talk about you all the time. I talk about how I couldn't do any of what I do without you, but I just love the mutual risk-taking and growth. And I am really grateful that you're going to hold the space while I'm off signing books or whatever it is that people do on book tours. Yeah, so. and I just need to say publicly, like just how grateful I am for you too. And, and without putting a bow on, on grief, like what a gift you've been to me during this time too. So great. Thank you so much for being here. I can't wait for the podcast, get in touch with Julianne, find it in the show notes. And yeah, I'm going to talk to you like in a minute, but <laughs> a couple minutes, <laughs> in a couple of minutes. <laughs> All right, everybody you. come back next week. Thanks so much.